0: This morning we're going to look at the primacy of the gospel. Primacy of the gospel and our passage is Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 through to 26. Philippi saw its first conversion to Christianity about 50 AD when the Apostle Paul visited the city And the Lord opened the heart of a woman named Lydia, so that she attended to the gospel message that Paul proclaimed. About ten years later, Paul wrote this epistle to the Philippian church from Rome, where he was in chains for the sake of the gospel of Christ. As it is written in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. The circumstances that resulted in Paul's imprisonment in Rome are recorded in Acts of the Apostles quite a lot on that, and I'll give you a brief summary now. It's good to have the background information. Very briefly, Paul was accused of encouraging the people to disregard the law of Moses. Also, a crowd was stirred up by the religious Jews to attack Paul because he was thought to have taken a Gentile into the temple in Jerusalem, thereby desecrating it. He was taken into custody by the Roman chief captain and his soldiers and the Jews accused him as follows. Listen now to the charge against Paul. We have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. After two years of imprisonment in Caesarea, the Roman governor Festus said to Paul, Will you go up to Jerusalem to stand trial? This had been hanging on, going on for two years. In reply, Paul, exercising his rights as a Roman citizen, said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you well know. That's how Paul ended up in chains awaiting trial before Caesar in Rome. Having said all of that, it needs to be understood that the events that unfolded and that are recorded in Acts of the Apostles were in accordance with God's good pleasure. To the end that Paul would proclaim the gospel of Christ in Rome. That is clearly given to us in Acts chapter 23. For example, after Paul had been placed in Roman custody as a result of the crowd seeking to kill him in Jerusalem. It is written in verse 11 of Acts 23 that the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so must you bear witness of me also in Rome. Very clearly, this was all God's design, that Paul should end up in Rome. With that background information, perhaps you can see why in Philippians chapter 1 verse 12 and 13, Paul said... But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. And this is what it was all about, the furtherance of the gospel. That's how important the gospel is. And again, that's the title of my sermon, The Primacy of the Gospel. And in verse 13, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. The most important thing for Paul was the advancement of the gospel of Christ. That came first with him. As to what that gospel is, Paul spelled it out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 to 4 where he said... Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. There you have it. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again all in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel of Christ. It's not complicated. It's simple enough for everyone to understand. But also it's profound when you think that who... You think about who it was who died for sinners on the cross. The incarnate son of God. He is the one who died for sinners on the cross, who was buried and who rose again according to the scriptures. God manifest in the flesh. And that is very profound. Although the gospel had already reached Rome and there were already Christians in that city, Paul's arrival by divine appointment took that most important of messages right into Caesar's court and to the imperial guard, the elite imperial guard. The gospel reached them through um, Paul being in chains. It might seem unthinkable that a door of utterance for the gospel would be opened to Paul in a place where ordinarily the pagan emperor would have been the object of all praise and worship and adoration. We, uh, we know that with God all things are possible, that's, that's clear, but even so, how could it really be possible for the gospel to reach into Caesar's palace? However, it should not surprise us to learn that such a pagan stronghold was infiltrated by the gospel of Christ. After all, what is it that Jesus once said to the apostle Peter? Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Day by day strongholds are still being broken down across the world as the gospel of Christ with its power to save the most rebellious sinners reaches the most unlikely places. It reaches deep into the hearts of people like us in this place. If ever you wanted an example of the gates of hell not prevailing against the gospel of Christ, you have an example in this place now. With people who, by the grace of God, they have received Jesus as their Saviour and their Lord. And if the gospel of Christ can reach people like us, then it can most certainly reach into Caesar's palace. Note in verse 13. That despite Paul being a prisoner of the Roman Emperor, he considered his bonds to be in Christ or for Christ. And that takes us right back to verse 1 where he introduced himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. Having in the past been bound to sin and to Satan, it was now Paul's great privilege to be in chains as a willing slave of the King of Kings. lord jesus christ a tremendous privilege to be a slave of jesus and to be in chains for jesus as such he was fellowshipping in the suffering of his lord who had himself suffered and bled and died as he took upon himself paul's sins at the cross and he took those sins away and for paul it was a privilege to suffer for christ's sakes for Christ's sake, in that palace. We can see in these verses that God most certainly is not dependent upon us being superstars in the eyes of the world in order to use us in his service. Paul was most certainly no superstar in the eyes of the world, a man who was in chains. Paul was not like one of those mega church pastors who proclaim little or no gospel and who live in the lap of luxury. Far from it. In fact, he was someone who once said, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. He was speaking to Christians when he said that, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Also, far from living in luxury, Paul lost everything for Christ's sake. And as we see in these verses, he ended up living in chains in Rome. There have been an innumerable number of people whom the Lord has used in their weakness, in their adversity and even in their death for the furtherance of the gospel. I repeat, the furtherance of the gospel, that is the most important thing. And to be used by the Lord in the furtherance of the gospel is such a privilege if you are a Christian. Doesn't matter what your situation is, if it is used for the, uh, for the furtherance of the gospel. There's that example that I, uh, an example I bring to you now, Bishops Latimer and Ridley, who in 1555 were burned at the stake. What happened with them is that as a large crowd watched, a heavy chain was passed around their waists to hold them fast. A stick was kindled, set alight. At the sight of the flame, Latimer preached the noblest and shortest sermon of his life. He said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. That would have reference to Matthew chapter 5 verse 15 and 16 where Jesus said to his disciples you are the light of the world a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Coming back to uh, Latimer and Ridley, with their bodies on fire, they were quite literally candles for the gospel on a candlestick. Even in their death... The gospel was advanced. Then there was Fanny Crosby. We've already sung one of her hymns this morning. And we're going to end this service with another one of Fanny Crosby's hymns. She was blind for most of her life. Even so, the gospel of Christ has been proclaimed for nigh on 200 years across the world. In her Christ-centered hymns. Hymns such as the one with the words... To God be the glory, great things he have done. So loved he the world that he gave us his Son, who yielded his life an atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all may go in. O perfect redemption, the the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Far from moaning and complaining about her blindness, Franny Crosby said, when I die, the first face I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Saviour. Crosby was thankful to God for her blindness because she felt it contributed significantly to her greater spiritual gifts. And when you look at the Apostle Paul, he didn't moan, he didn't complain either. As far as he was concerned, his chains resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. And that was something for him to rejoice about. You can think of uh, also when he was actually, he's, he was in the stocks in a jail in Philippi with Silas, his travelling companion, when he visited um, Philippi, the ten years earlier, in prison, the inner prison in Philippi, and both um, Paul and Silas, they sung and they, they praised God at midnight. They considered it a privilege to suffer for Christ's sake and for the furtherance of the gospel. And when you read that story in um, Acts chapter 16, it's an amazing, amazing story. Even the Philippian jailer came to faith in Christ. Without doubt, the greatest example of the gospel being advanced through chains and through suffering is, of course, The Lord Jesus Christ, when you consider Jesus, who was in agony and sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Wicked men arrested him and took him before the high priest. He was interrogated, the creator was interrogated by wicked men in the palace of the high priest in jerusalem he was blindfolded he was buffeted he was spat upon he was handed over to the romans they beat him over the head with a wooden stick they mocked him they beat him with cords with pieces of bone Um, tied into it he had channels of blood on his back he was unrecognizable by the time he was nailed to that cross and lifted up to die he hung upon that cross between heaven and earth bearing the sins of all who would trust in him he drunk from that cup that his father had given him when he had laid upon him the sins, the iniquity of his people. He was, he before dying on that cross, he said it is finished. He'd finished the work that his father had sent him to do. He was buried in a borrowed grave. And then on the third day, he was raised again, according to the scriptures. That message, that gospel message, is still being proclaimed today. 2,000 years later, there's power in that message. Power to save even the vilest of offenders. People like us, If anyone suffered for the sake of the gospel, it's Jesus. The one whom that gospel message is all about. Let's have a look at verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. When Christians experience persecution for Christ's sake, it will do one of two things to other Christians. Some of them will be emboldened with a Holy Spirit boldness, and they will be encouraged in their own evangelistic endeavours. Whilst others, what will they do? They'll take cover and they will hide. There's enough in the Bible to suggest to me that the latter are not only fair-weather Christians, they're probably not truly saved. Jesus referred to such people in his parable of the soils when he said, he who received the seed, which is the word of God, on stony places, and that's a reference to the heart, This is he who who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. I would say, I don't know, I don't know the statistics, but I would guess that that is a description of much if not most of the visible church, most certainly in the West. Much more positively, we can see the advancement of the gospel of Christ in Acts chapter 8. I'm going to turn to that now. Uh, I'll read it to you, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 2 to 4. These are people who didn't take cover and hide when there was some serious persecution. In the early church. Act chapter 8. Verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So everyone was scattered at that time. Terrible persecution. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Stephen had just been martyred, stoned to death. As for Saul, as you probably all well know, Saul is the apostle Paul before his Damascus Road conversion As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. We don't get that over here, not yet anyway, do we? People coming to our houses and arresting us for being Christians. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. I like that therefore over there, you think, well, Okay, there's that terrible persecution. Therefore, what do they do? They didn't hide. It says there, Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. They were emboldened. Outside of the scriptures, apparently... After Jim Elliot and his four missionary friends were brutally killed by the Orca Indians in 1956, a large number of Wheaton College graduates offered themselves as missionaries in the years that followed. And there are many other examples throughout church history of Christians being emboldened in their evangelism as a result of persecution. You can almost picture them lining up wanting to, to volunteer themselves. And of course, that that's ultimately um, due to the Holy Spirit being with them and giving them that courage and that boldness for the sake of the gospel of Christ. Let's have a look at verses 15 through to 18 in Philippians chapter 1. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy, and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love. Knowing that I am set for the defence of the gospel, what then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice yea and will rejoice as a consequence of the apostle paul being in chains in rome he was aware that some of the people who boldly preached the gospel did so for honorable reasons for all the right reasons such as love the glory of god the salvation of souls good reasons However, Paul was also aware that there were other preachers who were not sincere. They were preaching out of envy and strife. They were preaching the gospel, the gospel of Christ, but it was for the wrong reasons. Envy and strife. Maybe they were jealous of Paul. They wanted to prove that they were just as good as him, or perhaps even better than him. Or maybe they sought to anger and to upset him for some reason and somehow. Regardless of whether preachers were sincere or not, Paul rejoiced because the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation, was being preached. As long as the true gospel was being preached, Paul rejoiced. However, what can be seen elsewhere is that Paul most certainly did have a problem with preachers of a false gospel, such as those who preach salvation by works. Of such people, Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. No rejoicing there let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. He repeated himself. So important to preach the gospel of Christ. What is the gospel of Christ? That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. Nothing in that about us doing anything. It's all about Jesus. (coughs) The Apostle Paul testified to the Jews and the Gentiles repentance towards God and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet then, and most certainly now, there are many false preachers who do not do that. I've heard it with my own ears. I've heard these preachers. In fact, they will avoid mentioning sin or preaching repentance and faith in Jesus at all costs. Even when it seems obvious to mention that three-letter word sin, they will somehow dodge out of it. I don't imagine that they would be a cause for Paul to rejoice. Let's have a look at verses 19 through to 20. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body whether it be by life or by death Paul having already declared that he rejoiced because the gospel was being preached even when it was preached out of envy and strife went on to say that he would continue to rejoice and that is because he was confident that through the prayers of the saints and with the enabling of the holy spirit his trial because he was there of awaiting trial before caesar his trial would also result in jesus being proclaimed and magnified regardless of whether he would be released or put to death that wasn't important for him it was the gospel of christ that mattered whether he lived or died For Paul, as ever, what was important was the furtherance, the advancement of the gospel of Christ. In verse 19, Paul spoke of his salvation, which he described in verse 20 as Christ magnified in his body, whether by life or death. How do I describe my salvation? How do you describe your salvation? For Paul, it was all about Jesus being magnified. You think, oh, you're you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm saved from my sins, praise God for that. Why? What for? What's the reason? Why have you been saved? For Paul, it was to magnify Jesus. Finally, verses 21 through to 26... For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labour. Yet what I shall choose, I know not. For I am in a strait between two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence... I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Before we even look at that, one thing you can say straight away. He was a very selfless man. He really was selfless. All about the gospel of Christ. And now in these verses, he's thinking so much about the Philippians. Being with them, knowing how what it means to them. If he comes to them, if he sees them. What an encouragement it would be to them. Paul made no secret of the fact that he would prefer to be out of the world and to be with Jesus. For example, here in verse 23, he said, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Similarly, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8, he said, we are confident, I say, and willing, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 8. Nevertheless, Paul recognised that to continue in the flesh was more needful for the saints. His return to them would inevitably be an occasion for much rejoicing and much glorying in their great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Dear Christian, and I'm going to finish now, when you pray for more fruits of righteousness... Pray for the kind of joy that is so evident in Paul throughout the passage that we've considered today. It's a it's a definition of joy that I learnt some years ago. It's an easy one to remember. Joy, J-O-Y. You see it so clearly with Paul. J, Jesus first. O, others. And finally, Y, yourself. In that order. Jesus, others, yourself. We've seen it with Paul in that passage. First and foremost, it's all about Jesus and his gospel being advanced. But then we see the love, that love of Paul for the saints in Philippi. Paul, who was in chains in Rome. And finally, I guess somewhere... That his joy was for himself. The joy that he, that he was considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. At the bottom of that list. But Paul was rejoicing in that situation that he was in. Pray that the gospel will be proclaimed and Jesus will be magnified whatever your circumstances in life and in death. Amen.